This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll ask the question, why are Trump voters so angry, especially those working-class white men in the Midwest? Historian Stephen Hahn has been thinking about that. But first, E.J. Dion on America After Trump. Trump Watch starts right now. First up today, we have a special segment for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. For that, we turn to E.J. Dion. He's a columnist at the Washington Post. He teaches at Georgetown University, and we see him a lot on MSNBC. He's written seven books. The new one just published is One Nation After Trump. E.J. Dion, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, you open your new book by declaring that a crisis can be an opportunity. We certainly have a crisis. We have a president who's ignorant, narcissistic, reckless, abusive. I could go on. But how would you describe the crisis we are in right now? Well, let me first say, as you know, the book is co-authored with my friends, uh, uh, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann. And um, we came together on this book initially because we felt this sense of crisis, that uh, somebody like Donald Trump really had no business being president of the United States, which we say right there on the first page of the book. But the opportunity, I think, is visible uh, all over the country. First, I think Trump has given the system a jolt. Um, There were a lot of things slowly decaying in the system, um, and Trump has sped this up to the point where no one can miss it. We've had a decline in political norms. We lay a lot at the feet of a radicalized Republican Party in our book. Um, but, uh, Trump has kind of obliterated political norms, and you don't realize how important norms are, which are basically basic understandings how people in power or close to power should behave. You don't realize how important they are until they disappear altogether. I've been saying a lot uh, in the Trump years um, that the wisest person is the political philosopher Joni Mitchell, uh, who said, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm. And Trump is sure reminding us of that. Secondly, um, we're seeing sort of an autocratic side to Trump, which is a genuine threat. And we can see how our um, institutions can be subverted. You know, he had to, in classic autocratic fashion, he's attacking the courts, attacking the media, demonizing uh, his opponents, trying to undermine the very idea of facts. I mean, the notion of alternative facts. All of this has called forth um, a powerful response. I think in the media that I've been involved with all my life, I think there's a realization that uh, there is something wrong with false balance, and that you. You know, the media's job is to tell the truth, um, and if it's inconvenient, uh, you don't really have to say, well, there's another side to this story, when there really isn't another side uh, to a set of facts. You're seeing it especially in the mobilization um, around the country, both in civil society and in politics. Um, uh, Every Trump action has drawn an extraordinary outpouring of civic activism, whether it was the deportations where people rushed to the airports, lawyers rushed to the courts, um, as you know, citizens rushed to aid uh, their neighbors, um, whether it's on the, the DACA uh, ruling where there was an ex- immediate pushback. Uh, perhaps the most impressive pushback was on the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, where 
many Republican congressmen were, who from very Republican districts were shocked to see um, enormous turnouts of their own constituents saying uh, this law shouldn't be uh, repealed, that uh, we should build on it. Um, uh, finally, I think you're seeing some real activism uh, all the way down to the precinct level in the country. And we talk about a lot of groups in the country that are recruiting candidates for office up and down um, the ballot. Um, and people trying to turn anti-Trump anger into actual political organization on the ground. And um, this is something that needed to happen to make our democracy work in any event. And I think Trump is, has accelerated this process. And while the risks of Trump are enormous, that aspect of this period is very constructive and helpful. The subtitle of your book, One Nation After Trump, is A Guide for the Perplexed. And of course, you took that from the medieval Jewish scholar Moses Maimonides, whose book with that title was published in 1190. I learned this from Wikipedia. That Guide to the Perplexed sought to find rational explanations for many events in the Bible. I see that you, like Maimonides, are seeking rational explanations for, in this case, events in our recent political history, like what the hell happened to make Trump president? Do you have a rational explanation for that? Well, first of all, every single one of us is uh, deeply grateful that you compared us to Maimonides. So <laughs> okay. I will pass this on to my co-authors. Thank you for that. Um, well, there is a rational explanation uh, for uh, for this. First, we talk a lot in the book at the beginning about the fact that we now have a non-majoritarian democracy in the United States, and that cannot be forgotten that Trump lost the popular vote by 2.9 million, that the Electoral College is increasingly out of step with where people actually live in the country. We only had three elections from 1824 when popular voting started to 1996, where you had the electoral vote out of tune with the popular vote, and two of those were quite weird. There was really only one that was just straight out, out of line. Uh, we've had two such elections since 2000. We argue that's not an accident, um, because the Electoral College vastly overrepresents rural America, represents small, overrepresents smaller states, um, and compound that with the United States Senate, where by 2050, uh, seventy percent of Americans will live in fifteen states, which means seventy percent of Americans will have thirty percent of the Senate, uh, uh, which is there's something wrong with that. Then gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the impact of big money on politics. So that's one piece we really have to address as a country because it's making us an undemocratic democracy. Uh, but the other side of it is that the country went through um, an enormous amount of turmoil in a very short time. The Iraq War followed by the Great Recession, um, and all of this happening at a time when economic inequality um, has been rising, that we felt the fruits of globalization and technological change for a long time, but it really hit a crisis point. Um, and we don't uh, shy away from saying that uh, Trump ran, in many cases, a directly racist campaign. There's nothing else you can say about calling Mexican immigrants rapists. Um, and that there was certainly race and racial reaction and reaction immigration certainly played um, a very important role in his victory. But you can't write it all off to that. We, we think it's, it's a form of denial to say race wasn't part of it, but it's also a form of denial um, to ignore the vast inequalities both among Americans as individuals, 
um, but also across regions, um, even within states. Uh, I'm talking to you from Massachusetts, where um, the old mill towns, like the one I grew up in, um, have really been hammered by economic change. They were, um, you know, Massachusetts is so democratic that they voted for um, Hillary by a, a large margin anyway, but the mill towns were more open to Trump than the traditional suburbs. And you see the split between Chicago and downstate Illinois, New York metro area versus upstate, um, and of course those key Midwestern states that Trump very, very narrowly um, carried in places like Erie and Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, deindustrialization is re- has really hammered living standards. And so for progressives, I think um, there is potentially a, um, I think a useless argument, a counterproductive argument to say Trump was about race. No, he was about um, economic discontent. I think uh, we should accept that race played a big role in it, but the part we can most address are economic inequalities that actually affect parts of the white working class, but also a very large share of African Americans uh, and Latinos. And if I could add one more thing, I have been really struck thinking about the book and the election by the slogan of the uh, 1963 March on Washington, and the slogan was Jobs and Freedom. And what that slogan embodied is the idea that if you care about racial justice, you also have to care about economic justice. And if you care about economic justice, you have to care about racial justice. And that we need to bring these causes together and not split them from each other. Splitting them from each other is Donald Trump's game, and we shouldn't play that. So do you think that Bernie Sanders identified the issues that can be deployed to recruit Trump voters back into the Democratic fold? Of course, there's a lot of people at the Democratic National Committee who don't agree with that. No, I think Bernie um, identified a number of issues that actually Hillary Clinton picked up on. Um, She didn't go for single payer, but she did have a very substantial expansion of Obamacare. She came very close to adopting Bernie's uh, free college, and I think that young voters, not only in the U.S., but in Britain notably, um, have shown that they feel very excluded from uh, economic opportunity uh, in this period. Um, and I think Bernie um, addressing class division, which is something he's done all his life, um, is an important part of, uh, of the puzzle here. Um, and so I don't think it's, uh, you know, I have a kind of very broad view of the left that you, the, the left can't win without the center left and the center left can't win without the left. Um, and I think what we need is not a, do you move to the left or move to the center? I think we need to focus on what steps do we need to take to create a more equal society? Um, what steps do we need to take to empower workers in an economy that increasingly disempowers them? Uh, Bernie talked a lot about that, but there were a lot of other people on the progressive side, I think, who were very open to that, whether they supported Bernie or Hillary. I'm, uh, yes, I am trying to pitch a big tent uh, here, because yes. I think that's the only way progressives can win. We've touched briefly on race as a factor in Trump's victory, on economic changes as a factor in Trump's victory. What about the Russia factor? Well, I think both Russia and Comey, which are very distinct, obviously, given what Comey has done since. But yes, I think that there were critical moments in the campaign where material emerged that disrupted a negative storyline about Donald Trump. Some of this material emerged during the 
whole controversy over uh, the thoroughly legitimate controversy over Trump essentially confessing to sexual assault. Um, and this information came out. But even more interesting, and I think this is going to be something that we're going to see um, Mueller and his investigators looking at closely, is the, are the messages that uh, it appears came from Russian sources that were very carefully targeted to the right voters in the right Midwestern states. Where did their targeting information come from? Has Vladimir Putin built his own brilliant set of American political advisors over there, or was he relying on help from the Trump campaign? We don't know that yet. Last question. Your book is called One Nation After Trump, and you argue that Trumpism does not own the future. That is great news. Are you sure you're right about that? I deeply believe that. I, I truly and honestly do. I, I, I suppose I could get more publicity for the book if I denied a basic tenet of the book, but I can't. Um, you know, a couple of things here. Um, first of all, Donald Trump did not get a majority in the election, and he's hovering around 38 42% in the polls, the lowest polling uh, for a new president that we have ever seen. So from the beginning, he never had a majority of the country on his side. And unlike other presidents who try to reach out to their opponents, all he's done is reach out to a very narrow part of his base. And so he hasn't added to um, his percentage. Secondly, Trump is exceptionally weak uh, among younger voters. Um, he, he did no better than, and I think he may have been a point weaker than Mitt Romney among younger voters. Hillary lost some ground, not to Trump, but to third-party voting. Um, and so if, uh, you know, the young do own the future and they are not on Donald Trump's side. And, um, I'm sure you've talked about this for a long time. The, um, the future of the country is also a country that will be more demographically diverse, more Latino, more Asian, more African-American. And those, um, communities are not at all enamored of Trump. So I think that, you know, in the long haul, um, the country is not going in that direction, but we have to fight in the short haul um, to a prevent the damage Trump can do. Um, you know, organizing did a good job on that around Obamacare. I think we got to do the same around this awful reactionary tax bill, um, and uh, also protect um, you know protect immigrants and African Americans from uh, some of the things this administration could do, or in some cases is already done. But we also have to build to the, for the future. And I guess that's the last thing I want to say, if I could, about the book, sure. which is um, we think that you know, uh, opposition to Trump is important, but conversion, political persuasion, is also an important part of the story. And so the whole back half of our book is our sort of program for social reconstruction, if I can put it in those grand terms, where we talk about the steps we need to take to create a more just uh, economy, the steps we need to take to strengthen civil society, and a lot of steps we need to take uh, to reform our democracy. Um, you know, people aren't against Trump just because they don't like the guy, although there's a lot of reason for that. Uh, they're against him because they don't want the country to go in the direction uh, he wants to lead us. And we, we sort of hope that our suggestions would be a kind of first draft set of ideas uh, for people to think about as they try to build, uh, to create an alternative vision to the one Trump is offering. E.J. Dion, he's co-author of the new book, One Nation After Trump. E.J., thanks so much. It's been great having you on the show. Real joy to be with you. Thank you. 
it's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about angry working class white people. We've heard a lot about them lately, and now we can read a lot about them. For that, we turn to Stephen Hahn. He teaches history at New York University. He's the author of many award-winning books, most recently A Nation Without Borders. Steve Hahn, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we are told that angry working class uh, white people, especially men, made the difference in getting Trump the electoral votes he needed in the key states of Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin to become president. And there are a bunch of new books about angry working class white people, which are said to explain what's happened to America. You've read a bunch of them. The top of the Mm -hmm. list, the most popular, the best known is Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. It's been on the bestseller list for 62 weeks. That's a year and 10 weeks. Who is J.D. Vance and what is this book? Well, J.D. Vance, as best as I can tell, and that's mostly from the book, um, grew up in um, a declining steel town in uh, Ohio, but his family roots are in eastern Kentucky. Uh, he, his, his grandparents uh, were born there, and they also moved out. And he ended up at Yale Law School, I think, with uh, a professor who may have been the one uh, writing uh, was the angry, uh, was the tiger mom who encouraged him to write this. And I don't really know much more about it, but uh, he's very young. Uh, He calls it a memoir, but he himself acknowledges how odd it is for a 31 or 2-year-old to write a memoir. But he certainly uh, saw an opportunity to reflect on what he thought were his own experiences in this kind of arc of hillbilly culture uh, to try to explain, you know, one of the important things that he thinks are going on, which has to do with the consequences of deindustrialization, how it's had um, a very adverse impact on uh, white working folk. You write in The Nation that Hillbilly Elegy, this massive bestseller, quote, has the feel of a college application essay, close quote. That's... I mean, he raises uh, an assortment of interesting questions, uh, recognizing that the kind of migrations that his family uh, underwent were common to a wide variety of Southerners, including African Americans. But he has no interest really in reflecting on them, and in fact prefers to use the story as something of a morality uh, tale. And trading in caricatures that we tend to associate with the very people he discusses. And so they seem, you know, with with the exception of his grandparents, to be pretty um, uh, sort of thinly crafted uh, people. And uh, the story, of course, is his uh, redemption from the, um, you know, sort of being grabbed from the jaws of disaster 
by his grandparents and his own good fortunes of managing to get out of the uh, morass he saw for the rest of his family and community because his his mother in particular was kind of caught in this um, this uh, situation so I, I thought it was basically a pretty superficial rendering of what was going on and because it was a story of how he managed uh, to find his way out of it up against enormous odds well he writes about the people he calls hillbillies who are violent yeah. and lazy and ignorant and sexist and angry at the political establishment and angry at Obama. What is his explanation of their Well, anger? the thing that's remarkable about it is that he he's very um, quick to dismiss race. Uh, and in, uh, instead, he sees Obama as an example of the uh, privilege that um, Democratic elites in particular uh, have and how this makes uh, the hillbilly folk, which he both identifies with and kind of reviles, you know, feel a sense of inferiority. Um, I, I was really, I mean, the the last section of the book is kind of a reflection on contemporary politics and his ideas about, you know, where the Democratic Party went wrong and so on and so, so forth. And that's his take. His take is that uh, a lot of the anger comes from a feeling that um, they've been passed over and that the advantages have gone to people like Barack Obama, who, not so much because he's black, but because, or a beneficiary of affirmative action per se, but rather because of his elite pedigree, uh, seems to not only ha have uh, offered him advantages, but uh, remind them of the advantages that they don't have. At the same time, of course, he's very quick to talk about their own laziness and ignorance, so it's not as though he's trying to build a case uh, for people who have, you know, tried to go down that route and have been blocked. For people who want to understand white working class anger, is there a better book than the monster bestseller by J.D. Vance? What about this book, White Rage by Carol Anderson? It won the National Book Critics Circle Award. Right. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was a New York Times notable book of the year. Right. What, is, what is the white rage well, that I she's mean, talking I, about? I, it's, a, it's a powerful book in its own way. Um, it's uh, basically... Uh, an attempt to reflect on uh, white fears of black rage. Uh, this is sort of where the idea came to her. You know, what she's basically arguing is that the uh, the source of white rage is uh, black empowerment. Hmm. And she tries to trace this back to the immediate days after slavery and uh, takes it right up through uh, the civil rights era to the present day. And... Um, you know, it's a, it's a good book, and it's a good small book, and if one doesn't know much about all this, it's it's a very thought-provoking uh, book. She's kind of has this very capacious idea of, you know, it's all white people, um, and it's, uh, it's almost a historical constant. But, um, you know, she does remind us that, you know, there's a deep history to a lot of what we see going on around us, and, it, it, you know, the issue about power and who wields it and uh, issues about hierarchy and race um, have been important in provoking, you know, white rage. And there's certainly many um, good historical 
examples of it. So, I mean, I think it's um, a, a valuable and provocative book. It's not um, doesn't really get uh, very deep in terms of the uh, issues at hand or about which groups of white people, if if it is that. Uh, we need to learn more about. Uh, but she does really have a very good sense that, you know, so much of what we see around us has a, um, a very uh, significant and deep history. I saw that Al Franken, the senior senator from my home state of Minnesota, was asked by the New York Times Book Review, what's the one book you wish all Americans would read right oh, now? Oh, did he say that one? Did and he, he said one? White Rage by Carol Anderson. This was a couple of, we- couple of months ago. Yeah. So we've talked about uh, two books here, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, White Rage by Carol Anderson. Both of these are famous, celebrated, important books. Is there a not-so-famous book you can recommend on white working-class life and politics? Well, one of the books that I reviewed is a comparative study of uh, Youngstown, Ohio, and East London, England, by a guy named... Justin Guest. And, you know, I think it's the best of the books I had an opportunity to write about because he's really, I mean, it's not only a sort of a, a, a comparative study which helps us understand that we're looking at really a transatlantic phenomenon and certainly what's happened in uh, Europe over the past few years um, would confirm that. But he's also interested in recognizing that the co- whole construction of the idea of a white working class obscures uh, Uh, the way in which categories tend to submerge other really important divisions, as is true, so that in Youngstown, in its heyday uh, in the 60s and 70s, when it's an overwhelmingly uh, white city and has a um, a fairly um, uh, prosperous white working class, that the white working class itself you know, has many divisions along ethnic um, and cultural lines that people who are regarded as white may be from the Middle East, they may be from Southern Europe, and so that these were issues that uh, working people in Youngstown, Ohio, and especially in the steel industry, which was uh, so formidable there, um, you know, struggled over themselves. So, you know, one of the things that is, I think should be clear is that this, you know, the white working class is not an analytical category, but a sort of cultural and political construction that is meant for us to kind of have to understand some of the important political divisions uh, that take place, but it doesn't offer us very much information as to who these people are, what they do, and why we even call them working class. What exactly does he mean by the title, The New Minority, if he doesn't have a, a concept of a unitary white working class? What well, is what the... he does, what he tries to argue is that there's this, what he calls a sense of minoritization. And I, I uh-huh. think one of the, you know, the, the tensions in the book is between his recognition that the uh, so-called white working class is not uh, homogenous and the idea uh, more recently that white working people, people who had been uh, employed in um, steel mills or were the children of people who had been comfortably employed in steel mills have increasingly got a, a feeling because, not necessarily because of their numbers, but because of their lack of access to power, that they too have become a new minority. He does recognize too that that doesn't 
foreordain any specific politics, and that he tries to suggest that there are two or three routes uh, people um, do politically who are regard themselves as in this situation. One of which is to express rage and and contempt for the established politics, but it's not the only one. And what are the other routes beyond uh, or aside from, let's call it Trumpism? Right. Well, what he suggests is that some of them withdraw from politics entirely, and others actually try to find their way within uh, established political institutions. So that the third is uh, what uh, the media tends to call, you know, sort of populist, which is doesn't have any program, which doesn't necessarily have any clear party connection, but is mostly governed by a sense of uh, betrayal and outrage and uh, feeling that the established political structures are no longer adequate to deal with their uh, problems, a sense of powerlessness. What about populism with a more progressive political content like Bernie Sanders? Does he consider this a significant uh, potential for the people he's writing about in Youngstown? Well, this book came out before the Sanders phenomenon, so he really doesn't take this on. And he doesn't, he is not uh, all that interested. I mean, he uses this minoritization as his, you know, main concept. Um, so it's not really built around, I mean, populist is is something that he, uh, a label he uses to refer only in part of the book uh, mm-hmm. to this sort of um, sense of anger uh, and rage that that he sees mostly anti-establishment. And, you know, I, I don't think that any of the other works really offer much of a way of thinking about this. I mean, it strikes me that the media has played a pretty bad role in, you know, suggesting that this, you know, populism is a useful way to think about much of what is going on because it, it it's kind of a stand-in for ignorant people who don't know what they're doing and yes. are just pissed off. Mm-hmm. You know, how we got from populism in the late 19th century, which was a political party, and people called themselves populists, and they did have a program, and, you know, they had, you know, had their bad behavior as well as good behavior, but it was an attempt to readjust the balances of power in the industrializing United States, and how you get from that to a kind of small p populism that I think has been shaped by um, the tendency of uh, movements and phenomena we call populists to be more right-wing. One last thing, Justin Guest spells his last name G-E-S-T. The book, yeah, G-E-S-T. The book we're talking about is titled The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality. We also talked about J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, and the book White Rage by Carol Anderson. Steve Hahn wrote for The Nation magazine about the rage of white folk, how the silent majority became a loud and angry minority. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, John. It's really uh, nice to be on the show. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, E.J. Dion. His new book is One Nation After Trump. Today's Trump Watch was recorded and edited by Lyra Smith, thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds, and to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. 
Hey, Trump Watchers, you can follow us on Twitter at TrumpWatchPCast. Trump Watch returns next week with another report on what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.